Hello, this is Edie. Before we get started, I wanted to make sure you knew first how much we appreciate you, and that in honor of Teacher Appreciation Week, right now at Heinemann.com, you can get 15% off and free shipping on all Heinemann professional books. This offer runs until May 11th. Head on over after the episode. Some restrictions apply. See the website for details. The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. Heinemann is a provider of resources written by real teachers for real classrooms. Heinemann values teachers as decision makers and students as curious learners. Discover the path to lifelong professional learning at Heinemann.com. Heinemann is dedicated to teachers. I'm Brad from Heinemann. This week on the podcast, we're wondering what's the best that could happen? Are you familiar with this quote? Quote, the most damaging phrase in the language is, we've always done it this way, end quote. It's credited to the Navy's Rear Admiral General Grace Marie Hopper. Computer science pioneer also noted, quote, humans are allergic to change. They love to say, we've always done it this way, end quote. Well, not author Debbie Miller. She wants to create space for possibility. In her newest book, What's the Best That Could Happen?, Debbie encourages us to tune into that thing that doesn't feel right and then investigate it and see what kind of questions it leads us to. In What's the Best That Could Happen, she both models for us how to ask those questions of ourselves and leads us on a personal journey of her own inquiry, answering questions about her teaching. When we met to talk about her work, I was curious about the inspiration for her new book. I think the thing that that really got me going is I I just happened upon Warren Berger's book, um, A More Beautiful Question, and I began to think about, you know, how he's talking about how he did this, um, he did these studies about what is it about these people that are making all these changes, you know, and he did that study of designers and inventors and other people that had made changes in the world and I just saw the link to education because he talks about how we're always doing the same things we always do and that this was true in the business world. And I began to think, yeah, it kind of feels like it's also true in the field of education. And so it got me thinking, what might that look like? And what what about beautiful questions as a teacher? What might that look like? And could that, in fact, affect change? And so I decided to just try it out. And so I started to think about things that I had truly been wondering about, which might sound kind of odd because I've been teaching for a million years (laughs) and I work in so many teachers' classrooms. And yet, you know, there's still opportunities for change, to look at things in new ways. And so I decided to challenge myself just to see what that would be like. And the questions were based on things that I was wondering about, but also in my work with teachers, what were some of the things that they worried about? or that they were talking about or that they were, you know, just trying to figure out. And so also working with teachers to try to come together to figure things out. So these weren't things that are questions that we knew the answers to. That would be silly. But they were truly things that we thought would make a change, you know, would make a difference in our day-to-day teaching lives. How then, as educators, do we start in pushing back on that old adage of we've always done it this way? You know, I hear that a lot. And I think one of the reasons that we hear it so much is that it's just kind of a pat answer. I'm always trying to help us to think 
beyond that. And so, yeah, we've always done it that way, but what if, what if we tried it this way? Tom Newkirk talks about how, what if we take something that we really know and see it in a new way? And so to challenge teachers to think about that, and then let's give it a try. You know, this isn't about coming up with a perfect answer. It's about trying to see something anew, figuring things out, and knowing that there's always opportunity for change and to do better, really. And so that's how I challenge myself. And teachers, once they're kind of in the grips of that, it it's what gets us up in the morning, right? It's about figuring out new things. So I think it's part of being a professional. And when teachers start to see themselves in that way, it makes all the difference, you know? So we get away from that question, you know, but we've always done it that way. Well, yeah, but let's try it this way because this is so much cooler, right? We're engaged now where before it can kind of get boring. You know, my grandmother always said, if you're, if you're bored, you're boring. Mm. So if we're feeling bored, let's Let's think about it. Yeah, we don't want to be boring. No, no. that's the worst. No. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, you're right. It's important that when we're doing this work that we stop and examine that it doesn't feel right moment. Why is that so important? Well, I think it's important because we have to trust ourselves. Just like um, um, Warren Berger talked about how we're, in, in the introduction, how we're, we kind of are doing things on autopilot. But then there are times when it just goes that that just does not feel right. And then that, that right there can lead us to thinking about a beautiful question, like why doesn't it feel right? How might it be different? Um, what more can we learn about this? And so I think it's that doesn't feel right is the first clue to like, okay, this might be something I want to dig into. I want to delve into more. So how do you take that reflection then and turn it into a question? Just thinking about um, one of the chapters in the book, there's this chapter about what if we made work time our priority. For me, I was always, not always, but many times when I was designing lessons, I would do the mini lesson and then I would plan the work time and then the share. And somehow on occasion, it just didn't feel right that I'm always the one teaching first. Like it felt a little bit all about me and so I, it just didn't feel right. Like, what if, what if kids started out? And what if then the mini lesson could go somewhere else? And so I kept thinking about different ways that that might look. And then that's what turned into a question about what if work time was our priority? So I was making the mini lesson our priority when, in fact, that doesn't feel right. But that took me a lot of years to understand that. Debbie, how do questions lead us to opportunities and a willingness to change? Well, I think any time that we're thinking about something new, you know, we're thinking about a question, it starts to take over, right? Like once you have that in your mind, you're thinking about it at school, you're thinking about it at home, you're thinking about it in the car and wake up you when you wake up in the morning. So I think it gives us energy. It, it just helps us when we're thinking about something like that, we're kind of laser focusing in on something. It's exciting, you know, and it's fun. And you get to like come up with different theories, you know, in, in this book, he talks about don't rush it. You know, once you're going somewhere, think about all all the different possibilities, try things out to figure things out. And so I think it's really energizing, you know, thinking about a question. Sometimes we get caught up, right, in all the drudgery and all the things we have to do that we forget that it's fun. Well, in, in many ways, you model your learning for us as you as you write and then as you, you know, go through this entire journey. Talk about your journey and the process because this book is amazing. You you ask you you teach us how to ask these questions and to sort of reflect upon it. But then you take us on the journey of the questions that you asked of yourself. This isn't a book about me telling about a lot of answers, right? Mm -hmm. It's about being vulnerable, mm -hmm. really, and really trying to figure 
something out in an honest, authentic kind of way. I mean, I think it starts out with something that doesn't feel right. And then you, I just think it's about jumping in and seeing what we can learn with children. And I will often ask them, so I, I mean, it's no secret to them what it is that I'm trying to figure out. I want them to be a part of it too. The process is just trying to think about, so what do I understand today that I didn't understand yesterday? And to just keep building on it till it finally comes to some some conclusion. And not that it's finished now. There's always more thinking to our figuring out, but it's just that messy kind of process and trusting that it's going to be messy and knowing that on day and three and four and five and six, and we still don't have it. Of course we won't. It's messy, right? And so it's just sticking with it. I would do some reflect in my notebook and then new ideas would come from writing not any fancy writing, but just jotting in my notebook. So it's that kind of thing, I think. It's just sticking with it, really. While the book is organized by your questions, for your journey, you invite readers to ask their own questions on their own. Right, because that's the heart of it, right? I mean, that's the whole reason. Because I guess for me, I understand just because I've done it, I understand the power. I guess I know the power of that. And so I want I want that for teachers too, because I know how fun it is. And I know that it can change the way we view ourselves. You know, when um, there was that quote in the introduction about, you know, a child must have some version of, yes, I imagine I can do this. Well, I think the same is true for teachers. So once we start to assume some autonomy and assume ownership, questions are a great way to do that. And whether you do it on your own or whether you do it with a colleague, it's that it makes us richer and it makes teaching more powerful and more fun. So that's, I mean, it's a, I think it's a gift we give ourselves to do that and to go through that process, that messy process yeah. that is asking questions for sure. Well, I'd like to ask you, so I don't, I don't want to give too much of the book away. Um, and you, you, you touched on earlier one of the questions that you asked, but there were two questions that jumped out at me that I wanted to sort of ask you about that, that are essentially your, your chapter titles. So the first one I was wondering about is, this is the question in the book. What if we owned the units that we are asked to teach? What did you learn there? Man, I learned so much. <laughs> the thing about that question is that in many um, in many schools and districts where I work, teachers are given units, you know, and that, you know, the assumption is you're going to do this unit, you know, this is, and it's all planned out. And I think the intent, they're wanting to be helpful. Mm-hmm. And what I try to do when given a unit or working with a teacher in a unit is to think about, so now let's, let's look at this because there's usually something good mm-hmm. and maybe even more than something in a unit. But we want to think about is, are these goals? Are these right for the kids that are that are in front of us? And so I, I like to make the assumption really that when we're given a unit, the authors of the unit certainly hope that we're going to adapt it, right? Because they, they don't even know our children. And so it's kind of crazy to think that we're just going to go down lockstep and do the unit. And so the, the first thing is to think about, so are these the right goals for my kids? So to help teachers, I mean, that's what I did with teachers. And they really showed me that what we need to do is look and see, are these the right goals for my kids this year? And not that they'll even be the same next year. You know, a unit changes. And so to look at that, to look at oftentimes units that were given don't include what children will read or what they will write, or there's nothing really an end. You just are done with the lessons and then you're done. But what do we want to, What do we want for kids at the end? What do we want them to be able to know and do? So I think that's why we go in and try to figure out to adapt the units, not to just not do them. Sometimes that's the inclination. Well, I'm just not going to do that because that's not a, that unit just doesn't fit. But how can we make it work for kids and how can we adapt it for them and think about them as 
children, but real human beings who want to get excited about something and engaged and learn. In chapter three, you ask, what if our classroom environment and routines offered choice? What did you discover there? This started, we were talking all about agency and choice and how that worked together. And so one teacher, um, after lunch, we had talked all morning, said, well, yeah, this is all great, but you know, what about the sticky notes? He just went that all the kids were like bugging him for sticky notes and he was doling them out. And we began to think about, so why are we doing that? You know, we're not giving kids choices. So we're giving you two, but what if you have more than two questions? And, you know, it just got into this big conversation about way beyond sticky Sticky notes, but that's what began the whole idea of controlling things. And that when we're talking about developing the sense of agency within children, it can start there. It can start with, I trust you to take whatever you need, um, whether it's sticky notes or pencils or, you know, that's that's part of learning. And so to go through you know, routines like that. And even where you sit, we do so much over scaffolding for children, I think, to make it easy for them, but then they don't, they're not developing that sense of agency. Like I'm the kind of kid who can figure things out. So building choice within there, giving them access and choice and just sending them off. We don't have to dole out things. We want them to be part of the figuring out. So to ask them to join in with us Mm. is part of that. I'm going to end on this. The book is visually stunning. I know. Thank you, Heinemann. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It's a beautiful book. It's in color. Just walk us through a little bit about the design of this book, because you, you were influential in how, how this book came together with that design element. Well, I just wanted to show um, the brilliance of children. I mean, I think that's what it does. It's not only children, because they're beautiful in and of themselves, but it's it's what they can do and the work that they can do that's, that's highlighted here. And I I think, you know, we we learn to expect the unexpected when we trust kids and ask them to do their own figuring out, developing that sense of agency within them. So there are lots of examples of not only kids, but the brilliance in their work, you know, really all across the board. And so we talk about, or I talk about that and just giving kids time and trusting them and just seeing what they can do, you know, and just thinking, you know, just keep thinking in my mind, what's the best that could happen? You know, sometimes we're, we always think, well, what's the worst that could happen? They're going to do this and that's going to happen. But if we shift it, you know, what's the best that could happen and just send them off? Mm-hmm. We can always fix it if it doesn't work, but you can't fix it if you over scaffold, you know? And so just keeping that in mind, if I'm trying to decide, will that work? Will that work? Let's try it. What's the best that could happen for kids? My thanks to Debbie Miller for her time this week. As mentioned in our conversation, this is a visually stunning book. You can get a sense of it by reviewing the sample chapter on Heinemann.com. Within it, you'll also see some of the questions Debbie asked of herself in her journey of examining those moments that didn't feel right. While this book models the work of asking questions, Debbie hopes readers will find their own questions to ask. To help with each reader's learning, she set up a Facebook group to support what's the best that could happen. You can find a link to the group by visiting blog.heinemann.com or by searching on Facebook, what's the best that could happen. We also invite you to follow Debbie on Twitter. You can find her at Miller Reads. Next week on the podcast, Debbie will be back for a special read aloud of her introduction to what's the best that could happen. I hope you can join us. 
We'd love for you to subscribe to the Heinemann Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or pretty much anywhere you get your podcast these days. You can also follow Heinemann on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as our various Facebook groups. And of course, if you missed anything, just visit blog.heinemann.com for more. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.